0: You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 115. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Sklar. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. You have reached another Local Maximum. I am uh, doing this one almost live. It's um, Monday night's. April twentieth. I'm I'm starting this just at seven o'clock, seven p.m. And every day at seven p.m., I hear all this screaming and shouting outside for the first responders. And there's always a dog uh, for some reason um, as well that I hear. I can't see any of them, mind you, but uh, but I hear them. So if you hear if you hear any shouting and screaming, I think it's done now. But uh, that's that's what it is. Um, all right. Before we get into the Topic of the day, which is all of these coronavirus models. What is there I can say about them? Um, what can you learn? We've heard a lot about these models. The models are wrong. We've got to listen to the models, whatever. Um, and so I, uh, I dug into them a little bit. And so, look, you're just going to learn more from me than you would from a general. Uh, news source, I believe, uh, because I actually di- dove into some of this. i not an expert on it, but if you could find an expert on it, let me know. But um, I think nobody knows everything here, so everybody has to take their knowledge that they have and, and combine it with what's going on and try to figure out what's going on. So that's why I attempt to do a few announcements before we start, before we uh, stop, because I had some interesting announcements from last week, which I never... Uh, which I forgot. I mean, I was recording that on my birthday, so that was a lot of fun. Uh, last week, it was a, it was my I had a Zoom birthday, of course, uh, which is which was fine. We also had Foursquare Day this week, which is our company holiday. That's uh, April sixteenth. Four squared. That's a lot of fun. Uh, so shout out to all my Foursquare listeners. Another uh, announcement milestone that I should have announced at the uh at the predictions panel that we did a couple weeks ago and that was uh we reached a cumulative download for the local maximum of 100,000 downloads across all platforms cumulatively now cumulative stats are kind of a um what do they call them like a uh Oh God, I, I'm trying to remember what the what the name was like a like a, a stat that makes you feel good but might not be too meaningful. Okay, fine, but uh, no, it's pretty cool. Hundred thousand downloads, and you know it, what's interesting is the first time we had uh, the, um, the the tech retreat, uh, I was announcing 10k total downloads, and now we're announcing 100k total downloads. So that's a pretty big. I mean, <laughs> it would be a lot to get to a million by the next one. I don't think that's going to happen, but maybe maybe I'll try for another milestone by the next one, maybe two hundred and fifty thousand or five hundred thousand or, or something like that. Um, all right. So again, I'm not an expert in these models, but I have to say you'll know more about them than just what the news is giving you uh, because they're not going to dive into the same details that uh, that you're going to get from me. Uh, they're not reading all the stuff that that I'm reading, and I'm going to link to everything that I've read so you can look at it for yourself. Some of it is news articles, basic news articles that you can you can get anywhere but kind of putting them all together and other them and others are the actual you know academic paper from these guys doing the models but before the before we actually do that and look into these specific models on what the coronavirus pandemic models are telling us, I first have a bunch of things to say about just modeling these types of things in general, but, you know, whether it's diseases or whether it's something else, which uh, w- which will help us even before we dive into what's being done here. Um, because there's a sense of, you know, if you're not an epidemiologist, you shouldn't really talk about this. Well, I'm not going to write everyone's policies. I'm not going to uh, claim to understand everything that's going on here. Uh, but, you know, people have to make decisions based on this stuff. And, you know, yes, that you might have an epidemiologist at the federal government, but uh, you know, corporate and company boards across the world, as well as families and communities and, and, and buildings and, and, and nursing homes, people all have to make decisions for themselves without an epidemiologist, um, you know, what to do with the data that we're being given. And, you know, the the models might not be the best predictor anyway with an epidemiologist, as I'm sure many of you would, would agree. So uh, we need to start thinking about you know, what are these models telling us and why are they, you know, um, you know why can they be wrong? Uh, are they wrong? How are they wrong? All of these are important questions. Um, but there are some things that I feel like I can say with confidence before diving into the specifics here without knowledge of the field of disease spread. Uh, the story on the street is that these models, you know, predicted millions of deaths followed by hundreds of thousands of deaths. And now we're saying tens of thousands of deaths and maybe we acted as if there were going to be millions of deaths and uh, and, and shouldn't have. That's not quite the way that I look at it. Um, so whether that's actually how they predicted it or not, one thing is clear. These models are, first of all, full of uncertainty. And so to say that the model absolutely predicted millions of deaths um, is never what an actual model does, um, although that's unfortunately how they explain it, which is um, is, you know, <laughs> it's, I, I feel like a lot of this is they're trying to simplify what the model says to the public, and then the public ends up not trusting them because they treated the public like like we're dumb, and then um, and then when it turns out there was uncertainty, people are not sure what's going on. So yes, these models are full of uncertainty. I get that that makes sense you can't have it any other way you can't build a model like this and say yes I'm certain it's going to be within this tight range we all know that that's not going to happen so um and and this the uncertainty that we're looking at here isn't um isn't the usual, isn't the type of, I don't want to say the usual type of certainty, because in some sense, it is the usual type of certainty, but it's not the linear uncertainty that most people often pictures. It's not a pretty bell curve. It's not like, you know, the nice weather forecast where they might say, oh, it's, we predict 58 degrees plus or minus five tomorrow, Um, or even election forecasts. Look, election forecasts could be wrong, but, you know, we'll say, hey, uh, this candidate is going to get Uh, is up by two percentage points, uh, but the margin of error is plus or minus five, so you know it could go either way. Sometimes it's a little bit outside the range, but I'm pretty sure that a candidate is not going to end up with 10 times more votes than they they expected. Uh, But in this case... Uh, it could happen because we're dealing in log space here, not linear space or exponential space. Sometimes I, I, I flip them around. But but the important thing to know is that the uncertainty here is over orders of magnitude. Will thousands of people succumb to the virus, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, or millions? Um And so when you have an uncertainty, that that's broad. And the reason why it's uncertain is because of the multiplicative effects of the virus. You know, one person uh, infects three, then those three go on to infect other three, and there's nine. And so at first, you have an exponential growth until that exponential growth stops. And then the question of predicting when it stops is, well, if you're like a few days off on when the exponential... Uh, growth tends to stop. If you predict it's going to stop one day and then it really stops You know, a week later, you could be off by a factor of 10 or something like that. So uh, that's what makes these things um, much more difficult. I think that the rational thing to do uh, when this type of uncertainty confronts us is you want to do everything in your power to prevent the millions of dead scenarios, because right now people might be arguing, oh, you know, we have to, you know, if we do this, you know, we might hurt the economy, but save a few lives. But when you're faced with the scenario of millions of dead, which I think fortunately is now off the table, which which is fantastic. We really, uh, well, I, I don't want to say any of this is fantastic, but uh, thankfully that's, that's we have to be thankful that that didn't happen. So it looks like uh, now that, it, it, I think that taking action to prevent that scenario when that scenario is on the table is totally justified. Uh, it looks now like we were never in danger of that being the scenario, but I think it's reasonable to assume that early on in this pandemic uh, there wasn't, you know, someone couldn't say uh, with certainty that this wasn't a possibility, or they couldn't say with high probability that this wasn't, a, I mean, I look, anything's a possibility. But I don't think that they could, I think any reasonable person, maybe um, maybe a, a month and a half ago, uh, could have said, hey, this millions of dead scenario, this is a real possibility and we have to do something about it. And so... That would have meant taking severe action in the case of New York City in early March, which is several weeks before they actually did take action. So, you know, I remember, for example, Foursquare offices closed on March 6th. That's when they had to do it. So the the (laughs) Foursquare management were totally right. Um, But if this were a million dead virus, it appears that the governments acted way too late, which, you know, can we really expect anything else? Um, you know, they, they, they acted maybe two weeks too late to prevent that scenario, if that was going to be the scenario, which is kind of scary to think about. And now that they have acted, now that we are locked down, it's going to be tough to get them to unact, even though the uncertainty now is far less. And um, we got really lucky. There's no law of nature that says that there can't be a virus that kills millions in this country and proportionally as much around the world if there's any silver lining here, then maybe people will think more about how to deal with one if it, if it does come up. But, um, uh, well, it's something to think about. Uh, so now we need more specific protocols to prevent individual deaths. We need quarantines for the most vulnerable. We need more testing. That's a big one. And uh, and contact tracing. Uh, these are all very important. But at the level we're at now, it's unclear whether a national shutdown is preventing any deaths or if they exceed those that will be caused by the fallout from the national shutdown itself. You know, plunging people into, into poverty and that sort of thing uh, will lead to deaths, no question about it. All right. So, to dig further into the idea of log space, it's actually a probability space, more precisely. So we're, I'm not t- usually when I talk about exponential space, I'm like, okay, it could be, it could be, uh, you know, you could have ten, you could have a hundred, you could have a thousand. There is an upper limit in this case, which is the population. So you're actually talking about what percentage of the population is going to get this thing, or what percentage of the population is going to die from this thing. And so that's actually going to be a number between zero and one. So I just want to be more specific here, but what often happens in these mathematical probability distributions is that you're looking at a probability that's very close to zero. So say if we're looking at one out of every 10,000 people will die of, of COVID-19 in this country, um, that's going to be an uncertainty that's going to span lots of orders of magnitude. It's going to be one in a thousand, one in one out of 10,000, one out of 100,000. Um, a, a good example of this, so there are Probability distributions you guys can look at. And I know some of you are probably glazing over, like, why are you talking about these specific probability distributions? I don't know this stuff. I mean, this is the part where, look, not everyone's going to care about the probability distributions, but I will give it to you, uh, give you my thoughts on this, just in case you're interested in looking at it more. So the beta distribution is a good example. The beta distribution uh, is a distribution that represents an uncertainty over a probability or over a proportion. So it's like, I'm thinking of a number between one and zero, quantify my uncertainty over that. The beta distribution does that. And you can actually uh, sample from different beta distributions in Python very easily. It's like NumPy, NumPy NumPy.random.beta. And if you look at a beta distribution that's sort of focused on the lower end of that range, in other words, it's going to be really close to 0, maybe between 0 and 0.01, then you see that as you pull from that beta distribution many times, you'll see, OK, sometimes it's 0.00001, and sometimes it's just 0.001. And when you scale that up to populations, you realize that's a whole—that's the difference between 1,000 dead and 10,000 dead and, and, and 100,000 dead. And so uh, if the beta distribution does it, any distribution does it. And so that's just just one way to think about these numbers. I'm not talking about what's actually happening in this situation, but the one of the things to think about when you when you look at modeling something mathematically is what space do the values live in, and that is uh, that will answer a lot of questions right here. And when you have uh, uh, when they're when they're kind of a, a probability. Um, which is focused on the lower side. It's very similar to log space. And so that's why you see this range in order of magnitudes uh, that, that, that is going to happen with trying to predict this sort of thing. Um, all right. So another point that I want to make before going is that, uh, and I just made this, but it's the uncertainty bounds are never explained to the public. They'll just say, hey, today the model says 100,000 will die. But you don't learn about the full distribution of probabilities, and I don't really understand why uh, this is never explained. Is it really that hard for the public to grasp? Um, I know you're not going to have a newscaster talk about probability distribution probability distribution functions like I am. They're not going to talk about beta functions. They're not going to be like, uh, yes, a probability measure is a uh, it has a, a sigma space, whatever. Uh So, but look, I just. I don't know, maybe I have too high expectations, but I refuse to believe that people can't understand something like, hey, this is the most likely possibility right now, but there are two other possibilities that are also likely, and we'll change these likelihoods as more data comes in. I feel like the average informed person can grasp that. Um, and come to think of it, we, we talk this way when it comes to hurricanes, when it comes to weather, there's a 30% chance of rain. When when, you, when there's a hurricane coming, you know, they give you the cone and they give you, hey, here are several different paths that it could take. And people understand that just fine. So why not viral models? I don't, I, I and there are a lot of areas in, in life where a probabilist, uh, a model should be explained in terms of probabilities, not in terms of certainties. And it seems like there's kind of a communication failure here that uh, that's occurred. Okay. So a few more sources on epidemiology models in general. These are the models that predict disease spreading. Uh, Before we get into the specific ones at the IHME, which is that's the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, and it's an independent global health research center at the University of Washington. Um, It's funded by the Gates Foundation, and it is what is being used As a benchmark by our state and federal government. So that is the one that people are talking about. That's the one that I wanted to dive into. Um, But before I go into that, let's let's see talk about what we should know about epidemiology models in general. So and again, I'll link to I don't have time to talk about everything I looked into here, but I will link to all of it. In localmaxradio.com slash 115, there are some great videos from Numberphile, which I'll link to, which have some really good visualizations of this stuff, if my just talking about it to you isn't, isn't good enough, which in some cases, the visualizations will help a lot more. Uh, Wolfram did a, uh, a whole stream on diving into the pandemic data, which I have not yet had time to look at, but it looks really promising. So if anyone saw that, please let me know what you learned. I'll link to Wolfram's video uh, as well at localmaxradio.com slash 115. Also, Christian Hubs of the Artificially Intelligent Podcast has linked to an explanation of these models and a whole lot of tools associated with them. Um, so I'm going to link to that as well. I was on his show, Artificially Intelligent, recently, and we discussed some of the data issues with the coronavirus and some of the questions that were coming up uh, just in broad terms back then before I dove into it. So now I'm getting into more specifics Today. So that's datahubs.com slash modeling dash and dash modeling and epidemic. Modeling dash and dash epidemic. I'll I'll link to it. Um, so or you could probably just go to datahubs.com and you can uh, you could it's linked there in the in the front page. So a lot of these epidemic models are based on the SIR models. S-I-R, SIR. That means the S people are susceptible to the virus. These are healthy people who might get it. Uh, which I uh, presume I am right now, unless I'm an asymptomatic. symptomatic. Um, the eyes are infected people. So these are people who have the virus. And the simple assumption that's made is that they could infect other people, you could, of course, build into the model, that there are different, different people have different rates of transmission, or, um, you know, One person could have a changing rate of transmission as the virus progresses. Maybe the first two days they don't, they can't transmit it. Maybe the next couple days they're asymptomatic and they do transmit it. Uh, Maybe the next few days they're symptomatic and they transmit it um, even, you know, at an even greater rate, but maybe they see less people because they're symptomatic and they're staying in or something like that. So you could, you could change this model around. You could like, uh, there's a lot of knobs you can you can pull, and then the the third group. So there's uh, susceptible health susceptibles like healthy. Uh, the the eyes the infected. And the third groups are the R's. Those are the removed people, and those are people who are not susceptible to the virus. So. Um, R can stand for recovered people, meaning that they had the disease and now they have antibodies and they can no longer get it, but that's anyone who can't get it. So it can also stand for people who got it and and died. Uh, They are no longer spreaders unless it's the zombie virus, in which case we're in big trouble. But uh, the R's... Uh, most of them, I think, for this virus are people who have recovered and have antibodies. Although, but actually, it could also include people who uh, can't get it or just, you know, who haven't got it but aren't really susceptible to get it. It, it's, it. This is rarely included in the model, but as we looked at the data from the Diamond Princess cruise in episode 110, it looked like 80% of the people on the cruise didn't get coronavirus at all. Now, maybe some of them were asymptomatic, but I, I assume that some of them just didn't get it at all. Uh, maybe they weren't exposed on the cruise, but it seems like everybody was exposed on the cruise. Um, so it's possible that not everybody is really able to catch this thing um, unless you get exposed to like an extreme dose. I don't, you know, again, this is where my understanding of biology is a lot less, but it's, it's possible there are some defenses where it's like, hey, some people are just not susceptible to, to getting this. Uh, but If that's the case, that could be included in your SIR model. Now, There's another question about the people who have recovered from this virus and whether they are immune or not. Um, There's a lot of talk going around where you can get it two, three times, you're not immune. Um, And this is where I wish I understood a little bit more of the biology. But the way I understand it, is that viruses are just pieces of DNA or RNA genetic code, some of them single-stranded, some of them double-stranded. Um, and our immune system, which, which is, you know, it's, um, uh, these are, you know, DNA is uh, a, a linear ordering of, um, of base pairs. Uh, and our immune system, so it's data, and our immune system can actually recognize these viruses. They can copy the code. Um, and make kind of a negative of it, and they can later identify it and destroy it. That's, that's a pretty amazing thing, actually, that our bodies almost contain a database. They contain a database effectively of every known virus that the body has seen, maybe even more. And that's what the antibodies are. Um, if our bodies didn't do this, we'd essentially never recover from any virus or bacteria. We just drop dead the first time we got sick or you know, we'd never recover. So fortunately, when you beat this virus, you do get antibodies. There's no other way to beat the virus. Um, there is an open question of how long they last and whether they can handle new strains and all that. But these, these are pretty powerful things that the human body creates. All right, so the SIR model has, uh, has, three, has three buckets. And in the simplest version, the eyes, the infecteds, go around to other people randomly and then randomly infect them if they are S's, if they are susceptible. Because you can't infect other eyes, and you can't infect the, 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 the removed, the, the recovered. So at first, it can grow fast. That's the exponential leg. If there's a small number of eyes, and there's kind of an open... If I have one person infected, the first person infected, and there's an open field of... Of susceptible people, it will spread fast. This one spreads very fast. Um, I read that um, that uh, HIV was started. I you know who knows if that is true. I read this is started in um, in Africa. I think in the in the DRC because there's some group that actually hunts and kills chimpanzees, and so it was a it, it, it was a. Uh, a chimpanzee disease, and then you hunt and they kill the chimpanzees, and the blood gets everywhere. And I don't know if that's true, but anyway, that's what I heard. So that would be the first person uh, with HIV, and then they spread it from there. In this case, well, <laughs> there's a the question of where the first, first people who got it were. Um, it looks like there wasn't necessarily, you know, the, the infection in the United States didn't come from one person. There were many people coming over. There were almost a lot of eyes coming in from outside Uh, from from Europe and from Asia um, at the same time. But anyway, when you start with a small number of I's and a large number of S's, this thing spreads really, really fast. Um, And so, but what ends up happening is there, as more people get it and then they recover, they have antibodies, so there are more recovered people in the R column. And so that's when the spreading kind of starts to slow down. The virus doesn't really have a lot, uh, doesn't really have much to go, uh, a, a lot of places to go. Um, and so it starts to become safer for everybody. Uh, even if you are S because the people who have the virus, you're, um, there, there ends up being less people who have the virus. They're less likely to spread it. And then, um, and then there are more R's out there. So, uh, you, you're, you're just less likely to get it. And so that's how it kind of, it, it kind of dies down. Um, and so spreading can slow in a number of ways. It can slow down if the eyes, the infected people, are also bumping into other people less and less. That's kind of testing and removing and social distancing, all that stuff. Um, the big, the big criticism or shortcoming of this model—it's not a shortcoming; it's fixable—but is that you're you're not bumping into people randomly throughout the world on a day-to-day basis. It's not like every uh, you know every few hours you roll the dice and then one out of the uh, seven and a half billion people in the world or one out of the uh, you know, random 330 uh, million people in the United States, all of a sudden you meet up with one of them and, and you could randomly uh, transfer the virus. That's not how it happens. It's not random mixing because you're largely mixing with the same people day to day, people in your household, people at your work. And so that, that effect can really slow things down a lot in terms of virus spread. And so it's an improvement that's often made to these models that is, that is really important. Uh, in New York City, it might be a little more random, and you have far more random meetings in the subways and the elevators, even though you know, there are some of the same people going on, but it's, it's a lot more broad. And So that's why this virus uh, has spread so much more here than it has elsewhere in the country, I think. So getting the human mobility data, who's traveling where and who can spread it to whom, would make the SIR models much more accurate. And people have actually done this with data sets. There's even been a concept model put out by the urban data scientist, uh, Tassus Noulis, who uh, I interviewed in episode 71, about using Foursquare data for epidemiology models. And so I'm gonna link to that. There's a pretty cool uh, visualization there, but it's just say, hey, we can use Foursquare data or other data to get human mobility data and try to improve these sir models to figure out who's interacting with whom on a daily basis. Okay, so that is the SIR model. Let's now talk about the models being used by the IHME, again, uh, that are the ones that are being used by the state and local governments. So i uh, I dove into their paper about it, and I'll link to that, as well as to their website, which has some decent visualizations of the data, both observed and projected over time for any given locality, so you know you can look up the United States in general, or you can look up just New York or just other countries, that sort of thing. I suspected when I dove into these models were going to be some tripped out SIR, because that's the standard. And that's not at all what I found. They skipped SIR entirely. That's right. The models being used by our governments are not The standard epidemiological models. Now, it's not for me to say whether that is the right decision or the wrong decision, but it's certainly interesting. So, let me tell you a little bit about what I found and what questions it raises. So, first, what's the data they're using? They're using death counts from different places as the primary data source. So, we're not looking at infections, we're looking purely at deaths and working backwards from there. So it's like, okay, we've had this many deaths. That means you're probably going to see that many people at the hospital. You're going to need that many ventilators. They don't really know how many people are infected still. They don't know how many asymptomatics there are. But they think with death rate, you can have a pretty good uh, guess as to uh, the hospi- What's going to be needed at the hospital? So they they thought. Okay, for, first of all, that's that's what's important, and also the justification behind that is that the death rate is harder to fudge. You're getting data from lots of different foreign governments, lots of different places. So the idea was that the death rates, um, while still, you know, the, the the idea was they tend to be more accurate at least, not not. Not not accurate, but more accurate than other data reported worldwide. So there's some question over how to attribute a death to coronavirus, but I assume we can look at total deaths in a population compared to normal and get a good sense of it. But I think they're just looking at the raw death counts, regardless of how a country reports it. So they use data from local governments in the U.S. They use data from other governments in the World Health Organization, um, some noise has been made over the fact that they are using data from China, which may not be accurate. But the models are accused of overstating the data from this virus, or they're accused of overstating the danger from the virus, whereas it appears that China has maybe understated its cases and its deaths. So that raises the question, of course, of whether they're understating now, which is a scary thought, or, you know, what else is going on here? Um, they did rely on age-specific data, which makes sense because the age of a person is highly correlated with the virus outcome. So it would make a lot of sense to normalize or correct for the fact that different cities and countries have kind of a different distribution of age groups. There's more that you could do than just age groups, there's pre existing conditions, and maybe there's a genetic component too. But I think they're right that age groups is, is probably a very good start. Um, And probably the data on age groups, on demographics on different places are much more readily available and reliable than data on pre-existing conditions and that sort of thing. So personally, if I were building a model like this, a good choice would be kind of a Bayesian hierarchical model, like the one that I spoke about in episode 98 with Alex Andorra, who uses it to make uh, election predictions in France, because they are very good at mediating between the local effects and the global effects. Is this something that, uh, if if something crazy is happening in this country, is it something that we can expect to happen in just this country, or does it generalize to other countries as well? And uh, Bayesian hierarchical model is good at sort of figuring out um, how much to... how much to attribute to each one. But I see no evidence that this was done here at all. Um, So here's the crazy part about the model. They they look at the populations for which the virus has already more or less run its course. And the main place for that is China, Wuhan, China. And they use this data to inform uh, us of how long the virus will last in other areas, given the social distancing and government responses. Now, I wish I could see the result of the model that said, okay, given the population density and the social distancing of the population and the government response, what, what can I expect the outcome to be? But they don't give that general model out. I wish they did. Here's a quote from the paper. Uh, the value of the covariate multipliers and yeah, the, the multiplier multiply let me let me restart. The value of the covariate multipliers in each type of model was assumed to closely follow the fit obtained from data from Wuhan, which is the time series to reach a stable state in the training data set. To be specific, the generalizable information from Wuhan was the impact that social distancing had on maximum death rate and time to reach the inflection point. So it sounds like, in terms of trying to figure out the effect of social distancing and just the course of this virus in general, it sounds like they're relying primarily on Wuhan, probably not entirely, but that if I, if I were questioning these people, that's probably something I would ask a lot more questions about. Finally, and this part I find the craziest of all, is that they take the death counts from a region currently known. And then they take some other parameters from places like Wuhan, and then they fit a Gaussian curve, a normal curve, to the data. So they basically took the death count so far, and they fit a bell curve, like a normal distribution to them. Uh, and, and that's how they project what's going to happen in the future. They don't model individuals at all. So there's a Python package that fits curves to the data they used, and ta-da, this is how they're gonna turn it on, um, even though this stuff is rarely normally distributed data. So they use this, they use Curve Fit. Let me see here. Curve Fit is a Python package for fitting curves using nonlinear mixed effects. It can be used to do only that if desired. So <laughs> we need to, to fit a curve. So here's something called curve fit. Sounds legit. That's, uh, that's basically how I use Python. So I shouldn't talk. Um, now, there might be some justifications for this, um, for, for doing it this way versus doing the SIR model. I was just thinking about it. Maybe they wanted to keep these models you know, as simple as possible, because, you know, they, they had to do it quickly. And the more complex a model gets, the more that can go wrong, and the more you have to kind of study the issue before putting it out. So for example, if I were going to use an SIR uh, model, I would want to use mobility data. Uh, again, that's in terms of like, which people came into contact, which other people, well, I'd want to study that mobility data set that came in. Uh, I want to study it for a few weeks, is it any good? Um, is it, can we rely on it? And so they obviously didn't have time to do it, but I don't know. The IHME is funded by the Gates Foundation, by Bill Gates. Maybe it seems like this should have already been done. Shouldn't they have this ready to go? Uh, Hopefully they will for next time. So here's some other interesting quotes from the paper. Here's another one that that really jumped out at me. And I quote, because of the unique, high-intensity epidemic in the Life Care Kirkland facility in Washington state. We have modeled this facility separately from the general population. So again, this seems this seems kind of short-sighted to me. So it could be kind of a reasonable artifact of getting some model off the ground quickly while trying to remove the outliers. But, you know, while well, I remember in episode 110, Aaron and I found that uh, uh, Diamond Princess Cruise, again, it was considered its own country for the data we had on them, uh, which seems like 100 years ago, episode 110. But that the, the, the no one talks about the Diamond Princess Cruise anymore, although I think that's justified to consider that its own country because it's pretty self-contained. It's a, it's a cruise out in the ocean. It's like an island. But it doesn't take a genius to figure out that there are nursing homes at risk all across the country. There's one in New Jersey and, and one here in Brooklyn where I'm reading just some horrifying things about. Even the one in Brooklyn here is in Cobble Hill. I probably w- walked several blocks near it the other day. And it's just, it's just some of the things I'm reading are just, uh, are just I- incredibly distressing. And here they excluded the first nursing home to get hit from their model. Uh, which which it sounds crazy to me i'm sure there's a justification for it but again why wouldn't their model have understated things then because it was much worse than the nursing home so i think i, I don't know to me this just shows how hacked together a lot of these models are i mean i i know personally from doing marketing attribution models that um uh you know th- th- there are a lot of hacks and trials and errors to to do it and i feel like it took you know, a few months to a year before I had, a, but until until we had a good sense of what made these systems tick. And for each assumption, we had a good justification or kind of a caveat of what to watch out for. Um, So it seems like this stuff has to be set up well before the epidemic uh, breaks out. Another thing that could increase the variance and uncertainty of a model like this is that the outbreaks have uh, much less precedent and big data to fall back on. There are a few pandemics in recent history, um, but the the data is far from standardized. So you know, consider something like modeling the weather or modeling content as it makes its way virally through social media. In both of those cases, there's there's tons of precedent. You have big data, you have standardized data, and you can kind of tame the errors in those models over time through trial and error and learning what works and what doesn't work. So here, you can't do this. Um, Another thing that they should communicate, which is what I really tried to communicate when I did attribution, which was, um, you know, again ta- telling, uh, um, uh, I-, I was uh, uh, advising companies on how much their ads drove people to their stores, and so that it was uncertain. We would measure the data, and then as more and more data came in. Our uncertainty decreased more and more where we knew, okay, this is, you know, before we were, this ad could be really good, it could be really bad, we still don't know. Um, And then as more data came in, we were more and more certain the curve got higher and thinner. And then eventually we had far more certainty as to how the ad did. And so I don't understand why they don't do this now because as more data comes in, not, all, not all, they're, they're changing like the mean of the model. It's like, okay, now there's a million people dead. Today there's uh, 60,000 people dead, but they don't change the uncertainty bounds around that as they go. And they really should. Uh, I think that would clear up a lot. Um, so one final thought from reading the paper before moving on. It's clear to me that the authors or maybe not the authors, but their kind of perceived audience, the epidemiological field and the governments who are going to use this are absolutely, completely allergic to Bayesian modeling, to to Bayes' rule. It drives me crazy. And, And it's insane. They go out of their way not to mention Bayesian inference. And so this sort of harkens back to episode 107 when I interviewed Bob Murphy about the different types of uncertainty and using the right tools for the right one. And even though Von Mises, whose work we were talking about probably would not have been a cheerleader for Bayesian models in the way that, that I am. Uh, this clearly seems like a better tool. Bayesian modeling seems like a better tool to capture a one-off uncertain situation like the one that we are in right now. Um, but still, they, they try to fit their frequentist models right into it. All right. Uh, the world needs Bayesian thinking more than ever, in my view. Um, so that's, that's kind of what I have to say about that. There's no strong conclusions there about, you know, more, I have to dive into more. I've to talk to someone who works in the models, but uh, I think a lot of what I found gives us something to think about. Um, and if you have any follow-up, uh, questions or comments, localmaxradio.com, uh, or no, localmaxradio at gmail.com if you want to weigh in, uh, some other virus news. There's a question now if whether the virus just sweeps quickly through a population. There's not a whole lot we can do about it. It basically sweeps through before we can respond. And then it leaves kind of a lot of asymptomatic people, people who are not coughing and sneezing, no fever, and then they get antibodies in its wake. So it ends up leaving the population just as quickly as it sweeps in and our, do our actions. So... First of all, is it going to be less bad than we think it is, and secondly, do our actions have less of an effect uh, than we think they do? So I'm going to talk about some articles. I got to have a drink of water, man. There's a lot of talking today. Forty minutes of talking—that's a lot. I think this one is going to be the longest I've ever talked in uh, in one sitting. It's fun. Though. This is this is some good information here that I'm getting getting out to you. Um, all right, so. Uh, some articles coming out suggest that this is possibly the case, that there are a lot of people who are getting this virus. Uh, they are asymptomatic, doesn't affect them. Um, and so it might be spreading faster than we think, but also uh, the death rate is far lower than we think. And um, that means that the virus is the spread of this virus is going to uh, drop like a rock, essentially. Uh, U.S. News says a clue comes from Iceland, which has tested 6% of its population, perhaps the highest proportion of any country of those tested positive. 43% had no symptoms at the time, though it's likely that many of them did developed them later. Another one from Stanford University. Yes, that's the same university that came out with the smart toilet proposal last week, but uh, but all the same, Stanford University. Scientists concluded that the infection is both more common than previously thought and possesses a lower fatality rate than what current data suggests. So they wrote, our data imply that by April 1st, three days prior to the end of our survey, between 48,000 and 81,000 people have been infected in Santa Clara County. The reported number of confirmed positive cases in the county on April 1st was 956, a 50 to 85-fold lower than the number of infections predicted by this study, uh, their study reads. Okay, so at, uh, there are a lot of places that are reporting a high number of asymptomatic cases, but the the prevalence varies a lot. And obviously, there's different populations, different testing methods, all that. So if this is true, and the more and more data is coming in to suggest that it is, it really indicates uh, how much we've dodged a bullet here. Um, Or, you know, well, I guess you could say that we really took a bullet, didn't we? But we we took some bullets, but we dodged the big bombs. We we really did. Uh, So here are some thoughts on what this means in terms of what actions to take. So first of all, I, I think that the governments took action too late, um, and now they might be too late to reopen certain things, or at least to be a little bit more flexible and say these areas these areas can open and these areas can't, where there are some obviously okay things that are that are like illegal right now. Um, New York City is probably a special case. Uh, it might not be a good idea. There's a lot of people saying reopen the country, but New York City, I think it might not be a great idea to crowd the subways right now. Um, you know, maybe start with some small restaurants and businesses and, uh, and, and see what happens. So now, the question, now another question that we have is, are lockdowns having an effect opposed to just social distancing? So social distancing is just what people do when uh when there's a pandemic going on i don't mind some of it i mean the, the mask is annoying but when i go to the park there's a there's a sign that says you know people should stand this far apart and there are two arrows And you know what i don't want anyone getting that close to me in the park anyway so that's fine with me but um some uh people are now saying that there isn't a statistical difference in areas that have had lockdowns and areas that haven't so there's one that uh there, there's one statement coming from a top Israeli mathematician, Isaac Ben Israel, and an analyst, saying that, like uh, very, very senior, saying that the data on countries that have uh, different policies shows this. He says that the general trend is for the virus to peak after 40 days and then it winds down in the next 30. So, Perhaps there are things you can do to make a difference, but nothing so dramatic that it would appear in the data analysis. Um, so that's what he found when looking at the spread of this virus across many countries. The vir- Essentially, is saying, hey, the virus is going to do what it wants to do. Obviously, I mean, well, I'm putting words in his mouth, but the way I would put it is obviously individuals should take precautions, probably shouldn't hold big events and things like that. But in general, the virus is going to do what it wants to do, and- um, we're not going to have as big of an effect on the macro level as uh, as as we uh, as we think as we hoped. So in this article in the Times of Israel, they're quick to point out. Uh, you know, this is one of those articles where they're quoting someone, but the article itself is also trying to discredit them, which I always find interesting when there's a little journalistic tricks. You sort of think about what they're trying to do. but So they're quick to th- to point out. It almost sounds like they're like, well, he is merely just a mathematician, a lowly statistical analyst, no one to listen to. Okay. Well, they don't say it like that, but they keep repeating like, he is not a medical expert. He is only an expert in mathematics and statistics. Uh, well, I don't know. In, in some sense, this is a question of mathematics and statistics. So I like these exchanges. They're interesting. I'll read. Professor Gabi Barbash, a hospital director and former health ministry director general, insisted in a bitter TV exchange that Ben Israel is mistaken and that the death tolls would have been far higher if Israel and other countries had not taken the steps they did. But Ben Israel said the figures, notably from countries such as Singapore, Taiwan, and Sweden, which did not take such radical measures to shutter their economies, proved his point. He also released a paper to this effect, which I'll link localmaxradio.com slash 115, uh, which with graphs showing the trajectories. Uh, When Barbash cited New York as ostensible proof that Ben Israel was mistaken, Ben Israel noted the latest indications from New York were precisely in line with his statistics that indicate daily new cases figure peaking and starting to fall after about 40 days. So Barbash ended with, you know, basically, mathematicians cannot be trusted to make these calls, leave it to the biologist. That's not a direct quote, but it's pretty close. And I was like, good grief, I'm pretty sure that the mathematician is going to be more competitive at telling us what the statistical analysis tells us, um, which I would trust over biologist any day. And, you know, even if I were to leave it to someone else, it would be they would be someone called an epidemiologist not a biologist biologists don't know nearly as much about disease spread as epidemiologists and they don't know nearly as much about statistics as applied mathematician i mean no you know you don't get sick and you don't say uh and you say let me see the doctor and someone says oh it's okay i'm a biologist i'll have a look it doesn't really make you feel much better does it um now one thing i'd be curious about in this in in um his model that would be um, Ben Israel's model, the mathematician, is you know the individual response to the virus. Were people social distancing? Were they choosing to stay home? And how did you um, how did you gather those variables from the different localities? And how did you kind of determine how big of a difference they were making, or whether they were making any difference? So I, I, it stands to reason that these things have some effect, and you're going to try to measure it. Um, but and it was also stands to reason that all these like social distancing and everything is probably almost universal among areas hit with this thing and to different degrees. Maybe some cultures did more social distancing, some less. Some cultures social distance in general. So it'd be hard to suss out what the effect actually was. So again, I didn't look into the model myself. I'd have these questions for him. So does this mean, again, that we open up right away? No, not necessarily. Probably not here in New York. But I do think that parts of the country that are less dense and relatively unaffected should get back to work because it's really important. As New York City comes back online, we can take action to prevent to protect the most vulnerable and kind of delay the big events that could end up being super spreaders. I sort of agree with the mayor to like, you know, stop all these parades and stuff in, in June. I don't, you know... I, well, those parades can be kind of annoying sometimes, but we don't really, you know, if were, maybe I would feel differently if they were something I truly enjoyed, but, uh, you know, I don't know, we don't really need them right now, um, but we can uh, possibly start to get back to work without having the parades. Um, okay, originally, uh, you know, flattening the curve, if you guys remember, when you first saw the flattening the curve meme a few weeks ago, it was about making sure that our medical and hospital system didn't collapse. And I remember being told, you know, surprise, the U.S. is a backward country, and the whole thing is going to come crashing down. And I was like, well, I I don't know. I know there are a lot of problems in our medical system, and so I'm worried. Well, fortunately, that did not happen. Um, We did have, uh, you know, we did have kind of a heroic uh, uh, um, effort here and – the medical system did rise to the occasions, And in some places, it didn't really need to do very much. Um, here in New York, it needed to do a lot. But um, we, we did have the capacity to deal with this um, so long as everybody was kind of on a war footing. It's not like they were on a normal footing. We had the medical ship come in. We had tents in the park. But some of that was barely used. But it's it's good to know that, uh, that we can get this done. Um, okay, so... That's my final conclusion there. Oh, I had other things to talk about today, but I think this is enough to think about for just today. Uh, so I am going to leave it at that. Um, and um, localmaxradio at gmail.com If you have any further, I I read so many other articles on this, and I'm gonna there, there's going to be a huge show notes page today at localmaxradio.com/115 to kind of uh, get through. All, all of the articles that I've looked at, but um, I again, <laughs> I, I probably raised more questions than I answered. But um, hopefully this was helpful, and hopefully you learned something from this that you didn't know before. All right, everyone, stay safe. Again, if uh, if this uh, uh, if this Israeli guy is right, then um, then we're past the peak, and we have like thirty more days of this to stay in. So I hope he's right. So everyone, stay safe, stay healthy, have a good week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. This show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account at Max Have a great week. It'll feel the power uh-huh.